0: Hey everybody, Dan here, and you are not going to hear much from me this episode because we've got another Matt Goes to a Convention interview special. This time, Matt went to FlameCon 2023 and had himself a damn ball. So we've got interviews this time around with Stephanie Williams, Tate Bromble, Josh Trujillo, Charlie Jane Anders, and James in the fourth, not the third, not the second, the fourth one, the one who does comics. Uh, very exciting, great interviews, great stuff here as usual. It is a convention episode, so you know, please forgive any changes in in uh, audio, ambient noise, and all that stuff. But most importantly, have fun. And I'll see you at the end where I make the Patreon spiel. By the way, support XF on Patreon at patreon.com slash comicsxf. Bye. Here's the show. Have fun. We love you.
1: And we are back at FanCon with Stephanie Williams. Stephanie, how is the con treating you?
2: Amazing. Um, this is my first time at FanCon. I absolutely would like to come back again next year.
1: It's one of my favorite cons every year.
2: Easily. Yeah, it's easily about to be one of my favorites, too.
1: So you just wrapped up mentoring session here, which is just such a cool feature of the con. How
2: did that go? It, I think it went really, really well. At least I hope that it did. Um, it's always kind of still surreal that people want to get advice from me because I'm like, I'm still figuring it out too. But um, it seems like it was pretty productive. A lot of great questions. A lot of folks who are eager and hungry to learn. So I was more than happy to try to give them the best advice that I could.
1: So just yesterday, I saw a press release that you have a Scholastic graphic novel coming out of yes. uh, a Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. First, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, second, how did that come about?
2: Uh, so it was actually last year, around October, um, an editor has said, hey, I think someone might reach out to you. Um, and then my um, agent, Eric Smith, was like, hey, heard, back, heard from Scholastic folks. I think they want you to do some Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. I was like, oh, OK uh so they finally reached out to me and it has been off to the races ever since uh i got a chance to watch the entire series before it was out to the public uh both my son and i and we fell in love i had to swear him uh, he was sworn to secrecy (laughs) because he was like you can't talk about this to anybody at school um because they haven't seen it yet it won't be out until february so that was just a really great bonding experience um just because we just really Love that show, um, so it made me even more happy to get started writing it.
1: Is the process, the approvals and clearance process, different with Scholastic than it is when you're working with Marvel or DC?
2: Uh, a little bit, and um, the only reason why I say that is because there's just an extra person that it needs to go through. Um, so very similar to um, like Boom Comics when I when I did Magic the Gathering, like it needs which needs to be approved by the licensor. um, And then also they have a look at the script. Same thing with Scholastics. There's some stuff that they're okay with happening uh, in the story, but Marvel, um, like, oh, let's change this. So it was just the extra added yes or no, or maybe so uh, (laughs) between them, but uh, about the same process.
1: How is it writing a character like Devil who's nonverbal? Does it take some extra... Work on your own extra faith in the artists, knowing you'll have to depend on them for a lot more of that interaction.
2: Uh, so, I personally really enjoy it. Um, Primal is a show that I absolutely love. And for those first couple seasons, there were actually no dialogue at all. So, I'm always open to stuff like that. Beethoven is one of my favorite stories. And Devil kind of reminds me of a Beethoven-esque type character. So it's really just allowing that character play off of the verbal one, which is Moon Girl. And the animated series was such a great... uh, Kind of gave me a lot of direction in how they utilize Devil. Um, so in this case, no, I i enjoy it. I love writing nonverbal characters. I just did that for Little Rocket, which was fun. Um, so, because sometimes dialogue is a little difficult. So if I don't have to do it, then I'm not going to complain.
3: Were
1: you paired with an artist on that book, or were you given like, these are some of the artists?
2: No. So, so sometimes i don't know who the artist is until i get i see the artwork and in this case um for asia simone i had no idea that she was going to be the artist in that book but i was so happy when i found out that she was uh, we got into contact um so i let her know like hey um here's my info if you have any further questions like don't feel, you know feel free to reach out to me directly but that was really cool because sometimes you don't get a chance to really collaborate with your artist like that until after the fact And, you know, some things is good to kind of catch before any pen or paper starts going or, in this case, um, digital pen to digital uh, screen. Uh, But no, I didn't know, but it was a a happy surprise.
1: So the first time you were on our show was just around issues one or two of Nubia and the Amazons. Mm -hmm. Nubia has gone through quite a bit over the course of that. (laughs) How has it felt shepherding her from a supporting role into a major featured one?
2: Oh, surreal. Uh, I did not expect any, like, you know, I was hoping that something would happen. I just had no idea that something to this magnitude would, where I'm hearing that she will have a prominent role um, in Amazon Attacks, that event that Josie Campbell is writing that. I'm excited to read that myself. Um, And also to learn that she's going to be involved in Tom King's Wonder Woman. So if anything, that makes me extremely excited. And it means that I hopefully did a few things right that they want to continue with her and not put her back on the shelf. Yeah. (laughs) Who have been
1: some of your other favorite Amazons to write?
2: Uh, I really enjoy writing Yara Flora. I would love to write some more Yara. Yara is fun. Um, Philippus, of course, I would love to write more Philippus. Um, and I haven't had a chance to write her yet, but Artemis, I would love to write some Artemis and also some more Karuka. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah,
1: I just saw a soft spot for Io, so it's been cool to see her. <laughs> yes, cause...
2: and of course I can write about Io and just Io and Nubia all day. So yes,
1: <laughs> she was a character that I remember from Greg Rucka's yeah, run. Yes. and it was just like when I saw that she was. With Nubia's like, oh, that's
2: great. Yeah, because I figured like a blacksmith and, um, you know, a champion of Doom's doorway, there's probably a lot of visits that are happening because Nubia's probably going through weapons and then maybe eventually a cute little MeQ, and then they eventually, it's a, uh, well, they won't they? And they, and they did. <laughs> Yay.
1: So, on top of that, uh, two of the other characters mm-hmm. that you've spent a lot of time with are Bia,
3: mm-hmm.
1: who is. The first canonically mm-hmm. trans Amazon. I'm yes. not saying the first yeah, yeah. because I would assume there have been many over yes. the years. Yes. How did the evolution of that character
2: so, happen? Um, I was, uh, I went back and I read George, George Perez's run of Wonder Woman and his introduction of the Cavern of Souls, I just thought was the most beautiful thing. Um, and I knew that um, for the Young Diana series, uh, the writers working on that had already reintroduced the Well of Souls. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, then that makes our job a whole lot easier because the Well of Souls already presently there. So um, that's a new iteration of the Cavern of Souls. So like, let's do that. So how does that look in 2023? Um, so I always knew that I wanted to, um, you know, have a Black trans Amazon. I was like, how do I do this in a way that I don't know, I read a lot of comics and I know how people love canon and I wanted it to be a thing where um, not only does this character exist, um, but this character exists in a divine sense in how the Amazons are reborn. So that for the next person who writes VIA, like their job is hopefully not difficult. They don't have to do a whole lot of explaining because queer people have to do enough explaining when it comes to our existence. So there's nothing to argue (laughs) it's right there um so that was just something that just felt very i I couldn't i couldn't see a reality where i didn't do that it just felt like the thing to i don't know like i don't want to simplify it but that was just something that i always knew i was going to do i would we were going to talk about what the mascara looked like and what it means to be an amazon and i wanted that to reflect the real world
1: the other character that is absolutely fascinating is Medusa, yeah. and reclaiming one of mythology's most wronged women.
2: Mm-hmm. How did so? That is a story that has always been in the back of my mind long before I even knew I was doing anything movie related. Um, and when I think about the Amazons and how they were blessed by the guys, um, because they fell in man's world, is that not Medusa's story? So then, why is Medusa the one that is behind Doom's doorway? <laughs> and usually an antagonist towards Diana. Um, so when I thought of the story and I kind of pitched it to the um, editor she was like, no, I do not think that, that that can work. We stick this land and that could absolutely work. Because um, the other piece here is that if I was gonna show how Nubia is her own character and not just another iteration of another one, like how would she handle this? Uh, so it just kind of all, came together in a perfect way because she was guardian of doom's doorway. Uh, Medusa would be someone that she would encounter, but now that she is no longer guardian um, guardian and she is queen, a queen would have to do things a little bit differently than she would as champion. So not so much fighting with your fists to get your point across, but also just reaching out um, in empathy in a way that Nubia does. Um, so, I was just really happy. Uh, again, that was me, ch- you know, questioning and asking like, what does it mean to be an Amazon? What does that look like? And if we are saying that this island is for women who have fallen in man's world in some tragic way, then to me Medusa falls under that. So then, why does she not have the opportunity to uh, live her life in this way? So I am happy <laughs> that we were <laughs> able to like kind of do that, um, and it actually came to fruition.
1: In early November, you have a book coming out about the strange and unsung characters yes. of the DC Universe. Uh, the cover features a couple of my faves, uh, Dexstar, the Rage mm-hmm. Cat. So, you know, as my experience as a cat lover, most cats, uh, and uh, Armful of Boy. Boy. Yes. Uh, without spoiling too much, uh, did you discover any new favorites?
2: Ah, I did, and I wish I could say what they who they are because it would spoil it. But if anything, my just appreciation for the vastness that is the DC cosmic element—I don't even know what to add. My mind was blown even after I'd finished researching for that book. I um, I don't know, like I even after I started researching for that book, I. Going after it was done written because I was like, "Oh, I want to read more stuff." So it, it worked. It was at a blast.
1: So I take it as my podcasting partner has put a note in here that I'm going to give him a look about. Uh, you probably ran across quite a few Legion characters.
2: Oh my, so many, <laughs> so many, and so many uh, Legion uh, substitute characters <laughs> as well.
1: Yeah, I'm a big Legion guy, so I was like, "Yeah, there are some weird, There's wonderful some characters,
2: weird ones, but some mostly wonderful." Yes. Um,
1: so you wrote an amazing fan comic, living heroes. One of the principal characters was Storm. Yes. So you're keeping up on Storm mm-hmm. currently? What are your thoughts on Storm, Regent of Saul, member of the Council of Araco?
2: I absolutely love it. I do not like the fact that she is fighting for her life constantly or was at a time. Um I'm like, ooh, Storm, you could really use a vacation. <laughs> um having a good time and maybe that goes sideways, but I've absolutely been loving what Al yuen has been doing with Storm and A lot of these stories, she is at the forefront. Uh, She even has that, um, it's a series, but it's like during a very specific time. So it's kind of like one of those throwback ones. I I love that for the character, so
1: I'm here for it. Also recently you introduced a new nightshade in Marvel Pride 2023. Tell us a little about that character and its evolution
2: yeah so um i was uh reached out to to create a new character for the pride issue um and i was familiar with Sumness and also escapade where came before and i was like of course i've always wanted to create my own character for marvel so absolutely um so i didn't want the character to be a mutant because i'm like there's so much going on right now I don't want <laughs> you to get lost in that chaos uh and then I was just like, okay, well, what are some of the classic superhero stories that I enjoy? I always love when a hero is either doing something heroic or gets themselves in trouble because they're being headstrong, um, and that's how she ends up getting her powers, and I thought about Mantles uh, and what that looks like, and I know that Nightshade originally was a villain, but that's a villain that I've always been intrigued by, and she's now more of an anti-hero than anything, so I thought, okay, well... What if she had a cousin, like a younger cousin who um, knew of her, had very similar gifts and science, um, and had the opportunities that she didn't have? Like, what would that look like? And Logan Lewis came to me. Awesome.
1: Uh, you mentioned uh, at the beginning uh, writing a magic one-shot. You a big magic player?
2: i'm not, i am now ah. <laughs> i wasn't before so i was a little shocked when the editors had reached out to me and I'm like oh i think you'd you be good on this so they gave me all the reading material i had no idea that there were magic the gathering comics now I do because I've read all of them uh, since then, and now I'm a fan. I'm like you know, what I think I want to do a campaign very soon. Yeah, I fell in love with that world and specifically the characters Jason Braska, which I know things aren't actually good for them right now. <laughs> to put it lightly, but um, I'm a fan now.
1: The the DC book you were uh, are did a lot of journalism. Uh, do you, are you still keeping up, or is it do you find things like that book ways to scratch that itch? If you're not able to get as much in with all the uh, I think it's, creative writing, that, I,
2: that it might creative. be a way to scratch an itch because I do miss doing like the deep dive character pieces. I'm not gonna lie. So the moment that opportunity came, I was like, absolutely yes, because I I just need excuses to read older comics without feeling uh, like it's a guilty pleasure situation. So I was I was ready to do that.
1: Definitely. Thank you. Um, before we go, uh, how can people keep up with what you're doing?
2: So uh, I am, is I guess it's X now, but on all social media, you can find me at step underscore I underscore will. Um, I update my website as much as I can, um, but I usually post to um, Twitter, Instagram, for the most part. That's where you can find things, or my website, but there are other things on the way that I can't mention, but there's there's more stuff on the way.
1: Thank you very much enjoy the rest of your con.
2: Thank you.
1: And it is Sunday and we're at Flame Con and we are here with Tate Bromble. Tate, how is the con treating you? It is amazing.
4: This is my first Flame Con um, and I'm really enjoying it. The energy is infectious. Uh, It's just nice to be seeing queer comics celebrated um, and even non-queer comics being celebrated in queer ways which is just like the best thing uh to see um and like i said it's just like an infectious energy everyone's in a good mood everyone's so friendly um and so many people have shown up which is like such a cool thing to see just how many people are here seeing the line like outside um and so that's been amazing and just so many people are coming by the booth and supporting all these queer books uh so it's the best thing to see as a queer creator yeah
1: so you're here with uh, James Tiny, Tiny Onion. Yeah. How did you get involved with James and Tiny Onion?
4: So I first met James. I did a book called Barbalian Red Planet, which was for Jeff Lemire's Black Hammer Universe. James actually read that um, and really enjoyed it. Um, he then reached out to Jeff and was like, how was Tate? This I'm learning, I learned this afterwards, but I guess he reached out to Jeff and was like, how was working with Tate? Like, um, Because he really loved Barbalian. Uh And then so then James eventually reached out to me to do House of Slaughter, which was the first spin spin-off of Something is Killing the Children. Um, so that was when I first met James. And we had lots of video calls. We chatted about the book. He wanted me to write it. I was like, yes, of course. Like it, I felt very lucky to do so. Um, and then we just became very fast friends. We have very similar sensibilities, I think, in storytelling um, in and in just our tastes. So that went really well. Um, and then he has just like held on to me and I have held on to him because we just get along so well. And then he brought me in for Christopher
1: Chaos. So with, with the current landscape of pop culture, in any in talking to people about the work you've done, has anyone but Barballion, is that Barbie in space? <laughs> right.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's Barbarella. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's like the one where as a title, people... Are just like what is this? And like it's ac- like it's actually an AIDS crisis superhero story. <laughs> and then you would not get that from the title. <laughs> That's not what you'd expect. Um, so that whenever I do explain that, it, it kind of it people like it raises eyebrows. And, like they are immediately interested. Um, yeah, he's a he's a superhero from like Black Hammer. So he already had the name. Um, and then the Red Planet subtitle was meant to be like he's from Mars, uh, but the subtitle was meant to reflect like Earth. Um, is also this red planet um, where, and just like the red imagery of like the, the AIDS ribbon um, and all and like the blood and everything. So it's, um, yeah, that's like a book. I, it's very close to my heart. So whenever people have read it or like bring it to my table to sign, I'm like, oh, no, thank you so much. This is, this is my first comic and it means
1: so much to me. How different is working with Jeff and working with James? Is there, how different are their styles to work?
4: Yeah, so um, Jeff is an incredibly relaxed human being. Like, he is the chillest person in comics. Like, he must be. Um, And James is on, the like, not, like, totally the opposite spectrum, because he's also still, like, a very approachable down-to-earth guy. But James is also just a mad scientist. So he is always crackling with energy and new ideas and excitement and this business brain that understands how to make comics and pitch comics to people uh so but both of them honestly let me do like they worked with me for a reason and let me do what I wanted to needed to do for every book I've done with them so they're both incredibly supportive uh I've been working more with James now uh Jeff I did like two Black Hammer books with and actually in the Black Hammer encyclopedia I wrote for him uh but we are now just friends. So I mostly just hang out with Jeff or like catch up with him every once in a while. Uh, hopefully we'll work together soon um, again. But right now I'm very, me and James are always texting each other because we're just working on so many things together now. Uh, but yeah, they're both incredibly supportive. I'm
1: just so blessed to be working with them. The first arc on House of Slaughter, which as you mentioned, is the spin-off of Something is Killing the Children. Yeah. The, as I addressed it when interviewing James, his hellboy, as he is now <laughs> expanding it yeah. into a, a universe, yeah, yeah. Uh, not only introduces the protagonist that you've been using for your arcs, Jace Boucher, yeah. but also features Aaron Slaughter, a yeah. character from Something is Killing. It's not an easy title to, <laughs> to say, say quickly. Yeah. Something is Killing the Children, uh, who had appeared earlier in the book. Uh, was What was the discussion, or how did you work with, okay? we're going to use an established character as the entryway, and we're going to introduce a new character who's going to be your character? It it was
4: that I learned a lot with that first volume. I kind of learned, I was doing a lot. Um, I was setting up a new series, so I needed to pitch what the series was about. Um, I needed to launch a book that didn't feature the iconic Erica Slaughter in this universe. Um, I had to tell a story that was very much Aaron's story, um, spoilers if you haven't read far in Something to called Children but he like has an early death so I was needing to figure out this character before he dies because there wasn't much of him on the page and then on top of that I wanted to introduce a new character who was like fully like someone that I just really wanted to tell his story and then on top of that I did <laughs> this dual, na- <laughs> dual narrative across time so I was balancing a lot with that book especially those first five issues and I was, it was a bit unruly and I learned so much doing it. Um, but you can like see like every issue is stuffed full of just story and character stuff um, and setting up Jace. Cause I didn't know, I also didn't know if I would be back to keep writing. So I just wanted to set up Jace, give him a kind of an end, a pseudo ending in case um, James ever wanted to come along and use the character. And then they quickly asked me to come back for another volume and i was like oh my gosh i like i left <laughs> i left jace in the woods with all these kids i cut off his hand how like that there's <laughs> what do i do with the character moving forward cuz i didn't intend to keep writing him even though i wanted to so starting that second volume it was almost resetting that character or finding out what his story is moving forward which was like a whole other thing uh, But yeah that initial arc my back to the question you asked my for aaron my main purpose was to get everyone as mad as possible at James for <laughs> killing him. Because <laughs> I just wanted to twist the knife. I'm like, you did this. You took him from us. And I just wanted people to understand him and love him for who he is. That was my goal. Well, you succeeded.
1: <laughs> I don't know which of you to curse. But... Uh, now, the second arc well, features... How do I put it? in something is killing the children the parent title well yes there are human villains from the other houses or yeah. from the house that Erica has escaped from there's always a big monster yeah your second volume was much more human villains or yeah the house that the house of the of Boucher yeah but you still had you know some monsters yeah I'm, i asked something similar of James when I spoke to him the monster designs in this universe are so cool yeah, and different they're very cool how much were you involved in designing the monsters or was it just this is the kind of thing it is go to town well it's kind of my I
4: always I always want to add new things to the universe and every volume I've kind of done that the first volume my big idea I brought to it was that I did a lot of stuff with the totems where Jace car- literally carries around the totems of his family. Um, and then the idea of severing the, the, like, the bound totem from the, like, the spirit from the totem. by he slices all the necks and unleashes his family's monsters on the house. I just really wanted to, that was, like, my big idea I kind of brought to that first arc. Um, it, just the idea of him carrying around this generational trauma with him and using it against the house that took his family from him. Uh, and then, in the second volume, I had the idea of, of the anima types, which is like the gator monsters we see, where I was like, like these terrifying like real life monsters, like, and alligators are scary. So it's like there must be fear surrounding these real animals, and how would the, the fear of those animals manifest? And it just becomes an even t- more terrifying alligator. <laughs> so that was fun. Um, and that was Antonio, like the artist Antonio Fuzo. I just pitched him. I'm like, I just want like take the alligator and make it even scarier. Like take he make sure it's still recognizable, but take like the childlike fear of this monster and just escalate it. So he gave them like six arms, all these eyes, even bigger mouths and teeth, and they're just freaky. Like that the opening scene of that second volume with the with the school bus. Um, I just wanted it to be like as horrible as he could do it. Um, and he succeeded. Like, and he's so good at action. So. Yeah, that that was that was, and then my I'm coming back for another volume, and I have new ideas, so there will be new monsters.
1: <laughs> the big book that Tiny Onion is sort of pushing at FlameCon, logically so as it is on the badges Everywhere. and everything, yeah. is the oddly pedestrian life of Christopher Chaos. Yeah. which again, that's a mouthful of a title. Yes, oh, James up? can't be stopped. <laughs> yep. I've read it. I was like, okay, I need to make sure I get the title exactly right. Yeah. Uh, which you are co-writer on. Yeah. Uh, For our listeners who might not be as familiar, can you give us the the elevator pitch on the book?
4: Yeah, so it's about a teenage mad scientist named Christopher Chaos who has kind of lived his entire life repressing these mad scientist ideas and thoughts, um, very introverted to himself, very much an outsider. And then he quickly discovers one day in high school that there might be other monsters like him, but then also quickly realizes that they are being kept in the shadows as outsiders for a reason. They're being hunted by humanity um, by this like pedestrian world to keep the world normal. Um, so it's about this young boy finding his people, finding other monsters like him, and building this found family and learning how to survive and exist, and building a safer place in the world for them. Um, it's very much like invincible meets Buffy. Uh, it's 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 a bit YA influence, like, but it's definitely like the older high school audience. It gets dark. It's bloody. They swear. It has sharp edges, but it has like this very um, emotional beating heart at the center of it, um, of just this poor boy who deserves a better world than what he's been given, um, and how you kind of create and can build your own worlds.
1: And it has a franken pigeon. And it has a franken pigeon. Peggy, <laughs> Peggy the pigeon. All work all creative work is autobiographical in some respect or another some more so than others yeah how much do you feel like you're putting into this or how much when it comes to finding your family is this something that you want people especially young queer people who might be reading this to be yeah. able to see in the book
4: yeah i definitely this is definitely a love story to my own like younger self high school self who was struggling that's just like a queer kid in a small city um, who didn't really have anyone, they didn't have mentors, didn't have friends who knew... I'm talking about myself, in the third person, but <laughs> I'm kind of funneling this into Christopher. Um, and just the journey of that, like, repression, and then finding out you aren't alone, and so many people... I think there's this comfort in just realizing that even though we all feel so isolated as queer people, like, there is a common thread through all of us that we've all been through such similar things. Um, so definitely a lot of that is going into the character. Um, a lot of conversations that he has with his mom. Um, a lot of his struggles or like weird quirks. I realized I'm just pulling from myself and my own life. So it's definitely the book I'm putting the most of myself into, uh, which is exciting but also like scary and terrifying. But um, I think it's it it matters to me a lot. So hopefully it like reads through and like a lot of people. Um, relate to it and I think the more specific you get with these struggles and these thoughts it actually becomes more universal like people see themselves in it
1: you're working art wise with Isaac Goodhart previous guest of the show and uh, how did Isaac get involved did James come in with him did you did the two of you kind of look at a bunch of artists try to find the right that was fit? fully a James
4: thing they've been friends for like a decade a decade plus um, and I think James was always just watching how Isaac developed. Because Isaac's just, like, the best human. So he knew he was, like, a great team player. Um, and I think he was just watching Isaac develop as an artist. And then when we first started talking about this book, James sent me some of Isaac's artwork. I was like, this is what I'm thinking. And immediately I was like, yes. Like, his, his layouts, his the humanity he brings to the characters. Um, he's so good at action. So I I was immediately on board. And then he's just, like... He is blossoming on this book. Like he's done good work, but I don't know. He's tapping into something even more incredible, and like each issue gets better. He's always challenging himself, and he's now just like the perfect fit for this book. Like it couldn't be done without him.
1: Favorite monster, not just in your own work, but just what type of what you vampire guy, were, oh. werewolves, etc.
4: Yeah, I have an affinity <laughs> for vampires. <laughs> Definitely, just I love. The angst and the just everything there. Um, I and like I, I love werewolves and I love their dynamic. Um, just the two sides of the coin. So like I love them. Probably those are my favorites.
1: The booth swag for Tiny Onion is a Christopher Chaos zine yes. and print yes. and bag. You've got your own, I assume. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, the
4: zine is amazing. We like only printed so many of them. They're kind of just available here. Um, and my favorite part is Isaac did, like, a four-page short comic in it of just, like, what happened to Peggy in the afterlife. And it is the, he pitched it to me in, in line for, like, a coffee at Starbucks. And I was like, you are doing this. Um, and it's just so, it's hilarious. Um, it shows the best parts of Isaac's storytelling.
1: Do you have anything else coming up that you can talk about, as we are well familiar with the idea of yeah. you can't talk about this yet? Um, well, and the next big kind
4: of thing's out in stores is the third volume of House of Slaughter will be out in September, as well as my book, Behold, Behemoth. Um, The first volume's out in September as well, and that's a a psycho-horror post-apocalyptic book um, that's also with, like, a queer protagonist who's just an anxious mess as the world is falling apart, which is basically me putting all of my current (laughs) apocalyptic (laughs) feelings from the world into this book. And I was done with Nick Robles, who's like an incredible queer artist. Um, So that book is also very queer and emotional and and scary, but like a lot of, has a strong heart, I think. Uh, But that comes out in September from Boom.
3: Great.
1: Well, Tate, thank you very much. Before we go where can people keep up with you and christopher chaos and house of slaughter behold behemoth and anything else
4: yeah probably all my socials like i'm on um twitter or x or whatever um i'm also (laughs) on blue sky and um instagram just at tate bromble my name uh and you'll find me there all the updates thank you very
3: much thank you
5: and enjoy the rest of your con josh Good to see you. Yeah, thank you for having me. How's your con going so far? So far, so good. We're like two
1: hours in. It's already like a full house, I think. So Love hearing it. Uh, so, last time we talked to you was last year at FlameCon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, they just announced Blue Beetle. And this year, we're talking to you the week the trade of that series comes out. Yeah. And the week that your new uh, original, I don't know, graphic novel because it's history, but there's graphic. I guess it's a, it's a non-fiction graphic novel. There we go. Uh, Washington's Gay General hit. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 have you found some way to convince your publishers to drop your books right around FlameCon every year?
5: I know, it's a coincidence, right? <laughs> uh, there is something to that. But uh, <laughs> uh, it just kind of worked out, right? Because the, the Blue Beetle movie is this week, the Gay General book debuts this week, um, the Blue Beetle trade came out just a few days ago. And so like it all kind of aligned, so it made for like a perfect FlameCon mix.
1: Have you gotten a chance to...
5: Did see the movie? No, yet. I haven't seen the movie yet. Before seeing it. I'm very stoked about the movie. I think
1: it's going to be really good. Um, so you do have a new volume of Blue Beetle starting
5: October? Yeah, the ongoing series relaunches at number one uh, in
1: September. September. Uh, what can you yeah, pitch us on the new arc? So um, we're back in Palmera City.
5: Uh, Jaime is leading his team of beetles. We've got the green one, uh, Natita, the yellow one, Dynastis, uh, Starfire's in the book, Ted Cord's in the book, a couple of new characters we haven't seen before. Um, they're dealing with a, a new threat that actually has ties to the original Blue Beetle, uh, Dan Garrett. And so it's kind of a long standing uh, uh, story that's been going simmering in the background all these years. Um, so I'm excited about that and just kind of like a lot of fun, uh, Paco and Brenda are in the book, a lot of fan favorite characters, a lot of guest stars. So we're just kind of throwing the what's throwing the the weirdness of the DC universe at High Man, seeing what sticks.
1: It's fascinating to go back to Dan Garrett, who doesn't get a lot of play with the world with so much legacy to it, and he was an oddly popular character back in the day. He had his own radio drama, yeah, he, which Batman never did. Right, he was
5: a very popular character in multimedia way back when, and I don't expect any uh, Dan Garrett uh, fanatics. To still be alive necessarily, but I love the character and you know legacy is so fundamental to the DC universe and for Blue Beetle in particular. Um, Jaime has a close relationship with Ted Kord, the second Blue Beetle, just like Ted had a relationship with Dan Garrett, um, and so we're kind of I wanted to create a through line to kind of connect all these different Beetles, and then of course Dan uh, had access to the power of Kaji Da, which now it was molded itself onto Jaime's spine. Um, So there is a lot of connection shared between those two.
1: What about Starfire made her a character you wanted to see play off of Jaime?
5: Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, Jaime's had a lot of mentors over the years. He's had Peacemaker. He's had, obviously, Ted Kord. He's had members of the other Justice League International characters. And I wanted someone to kind of spotlight uh, the space side of Jaime. He is a cosmic character in a lot of ways. The Blue Beetle Scared comes from outer space. It's made by the Reach. And so I wanted to kind of explore this history that we're building between the Tamaranians and the Reach themselves. And I thought Starfire would be a perfect character to kind of step into that mentor role. It's interesting to take her outside of the Titans character cast and kind of give her something else to do. And I just like the idea of, uh, there's this misconception that Starfire is kind of ditzy. And that's certainly not the case. Um, but the voice actress for Starfire, uh, I met her at a convention years ago and I, I told her, I was like, oh, I love Starfire. She's kind of funny and a little little ditzy. She's like, she's not ditzy. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And so, you know, some people are street smart, like, like Dick Grayson. Some people are space smart. And that's what Starfire's deal is. She's just not in space. Uh, she's still curious about our culture. And also, you know, Jaime and his family share a culture that is unique. Uh, to the DC universe, largely. And Starfire hasn't really tapped into that before. So we get to see her kind of wide-eye exploring this part of human culture that she's never gotten to see.
1: Love that. Uh, So you also introduced the Horizon. Yes. Which are an offshoot of the traditional Reach nemesis. Where did the inspiration for going with something other than just another Reach story, It was just, okay, we don't need to go to the Reach well again, or...
5: You know, um, the way that the Reach are presented in the original John Rogers, Keith Giffen, Cully Hamner run, um, you know, they are this all-powerful, they've been to, they've conquered hundreds of worlds of this empire, right? And so, you know, uh, no empire is a monolith, and there are people within it who are fighting against, you know, they are fighting against the oppression of the Reach, There are people who have fled the Reach, and that's kind of what the horizon are, they're refugees from the Reach, and they're just trying to find a home for themselves. And they land on Earth, but obviously in order to do that, a lot of crazy stuff happens, and that's the whole impetus of graduation day. Um, I wanted to look at them in a more nuanced way than they've kind of had a chance to before. And I thought it would be interesting to have Jaime, you know, his greatest strength is his empathy, and for him to apply that to basically his, his worst enemies, his biggest fear.
1: How has your relationship with the character of Jaime deepened or changed over the course of writing the character?
5: Uh, yeah. So uh when the character debuted, I was about his age. Um and I just saw a lot of parallels kind of his experience being Mexican American and my own. And um I just loved the book. It's the first comic, I think, from DC that I read monthly, and I was obsessed with it. And so like I've always been a big fan of of Jaime. But uh, now that I'm writing the character, I feel this kind of like responsibility to him and also to, to use the word again, like the legacy of the character and to all of the Blue Beetles. You know, um, there's, now there's a lot of attention on Jaime in particular because of the movie coming out. And uh, I want to make sure that I'm a steward to the character. I'm a good custodian. That's not a sexy word, but it's, a, it's the truth. You want to leave things in a better place than before. And for me, that means... Filling his world with colorful characters, new threats, new friends, new romances, potentially, and kind of giving him as much as possible. And I hope that's what comes to define my run, is all the bells and whistles and excitement that I've been bringing to the book, or trying to.
1: Very cool. So last year, when we talked, we talked a little bit about Aaron Fisher, yes. Captain America of the Railways, who you co-created. and. With any shared universe, you're creating characters that are going to possibly, hopefully, pop up again. Mm-hmm. And Aaron just popped up on the cover of the third issue of The Astonishing Ice. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, so how does it feel to see, like, oh, hey, somebody's taking this toy that I built out of the toy box and playing with it?
5: Yeah, that's really, like, the first time anything like that's happened for me. And so it's really, like, I don't know, it's, it's amazing. I'm very, it's very generous of Steve Orlando to want to use the character. And it's also a little bit validating, like, oh, we did create something that meaningfully that people connect with. You know, um, I haven't seen any uh, anyone at FlameCon dressed up like Aaron Fisher yet, but I have been to San Diego, I've been to WonderCon, I've seen people dressed up as the character, I've seen that passion that people really have. There's something about him that resonates with readers, and I hope that he continues to do that for a long time to come, and, you know, it's it's weird because... I, I don't know what he does in The Astonishing Iceman, you know what I mean? It's like my kid has is, is gone to college, and now I don't get to check in on him every day. Um, but that's good. That's, that's amazing. I hope he's there for 100 years and has 100 writers to tackle him.
1: So at the top, we talked about uh, your new book, Washington's Gay General, uh, which is a story from the Revolutionary War, mm-hmm. American Revolution, uh, about uh, Baron von Steuben. Yes. What attracted you to uh, that particular story? So years ago
5: uh, at PlameCon, uh, Levi Hastings and I, Levi's the illustrator on the book, uh, did a zine uh, kind of about gay revolutionary war romance. It was fictionalized. And people came up to us and they're like, you have to do a comic about Baron von Steuben. And I was like, that's great. Let's do it. Who's that? And so <laughs> what started as a small comic for the NIP.com Soon, kind of blew up into this viral comic. It was one of their their most spread around comics, and uh, as a result, we got a book deal. And now it's been like four years later, and now we have the full hardcover. But uh, there's something about the Baron's story that's so interesting to me, and it feels really uh, relatable. You know, he he uh, always aspires for more than he's than he had. He always wants more for himself. He's chasing legacy. He's chasing. Uh, uh he's he's chasing history he wants to become one of the great men of of the world and that kind of compulsion takes him to great heights but it's still never enough for him there's this dissatisfaction in his story and there's a lot of obstacles that he's had to overcome but along the way he's met all these incredible characters he's interacted with frederick the great frederick's brother henry he's interacted with george washington obviously all the founding fathers and he's he's fought valiantly in all of these wars and so it's really interesting to like read his life through not just American history. We spend a lot of the book talking about his life in Prussia, which is never really explored from the queer perspective. So just to kind of like unearth all this history that um, maybe East Coast historical types know a little bit about, but to really explore it from a queer identity, I think was, is really meaningful. You've worked with Levi Hastings on a few things. How did
1: you guys originally connect?
5: Uh, we met on Twitter through just mutual peers, which is how we did it back then when when, when there was a Twitter, I guess. But um, we were literally on the same escalator. And it was like, wait, you're Levi Hastings. Wait, you're Josh Trujillo. And that turned into a drink after the convention, turned into a conversation, turned into a mini comic, turned into now a hardcover book and hopefully uh, starting the next one.
1: Are you uh, generally pun completely intended a history buff
5: Uh, i am i would say i'm an arm armchair historian Uh, i'm a a casual reader of history but i love books like um the work of sarah Vowell, for example is a big influence on me the way that she makes history funny and accessible is something that i kind of aspire to do with gay general and so i hope uh i hope to do a lot more of it i hope to get uh hope to get better at it i'm not a historian by trade i didn't go to school for it or anything but it was it's my it's my best effort to present a a true retelling of this guy's life
1: what is the importance to you about writing queer people in history
5: yeah um you know whether it be my historical work or even something like uh, aaron fisher i want people to be able to see themselves in popular media and fiction and now nonfiction. you know um, history kind of has this weird myth uh or of uh, this idea that gay people didn't really exist until stonewall and we've always been there, but a lot of that history has been rewritten, omitted, hidden, destroyed, and so we don't have a lot of role models to look back to. And that's why Baron von Steuben is so interesting. His life is so well documented, and he's so prominent in the Revolutionary War. And we have we have a lot of evidence that that suggests he lived this queer life. And so just that alone makes him very noteworthy and makes him stand out. I think even above his military achievements.
1: Now, the, onto a Personal question because yeah. I'm a noted Batman yeah. fanatic. Uh, you wrote an Alfred story yes. in Urban Legends. Um, what is it about Alfred that appeals to you? That's a character that I just I love, and I love. I just love to see what it is about him that speaks to people who've done stories for Alfred.
5: Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of there's so much between Alfred and Bruce and their relationship. Obviously, Alfred is the surrogate father to Bruce, and they kind of dance around that a lot of the time without actually saying as much to each other. And so in my story, I wanted to kind of confront um, Alfred's mortality and how that might affect Bruce. And so obviously, Alfred's dead in the comics now, but this was a story that was set kind of before then, and the idea of Alfred being confronted with his own mortality, being confronted with aging, and Bruce having to kind of reconcile that for the first time. But still a Batman story, right? So we're still crashing through windows and punching things and doing a mystery. And I just wanted to kind of touch on Alfred's spy skills as well and show that what a valuable member to the team he is.
1: You've worked on uh, video games as well. Mm-hmm. What are you
5: playing now? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm playing what Nintendo tells me to play, like always. Um, I'm bit- On Tears of the Kingdom just got started. I'm getting distracted with a lot of pick-up-and-play stuff, a lot of nostalgia. Um, there's that Mickey Mouse Island of Illusion, I want to say it's called. That's been fun. There's this Pac-Man collection I just bought, because I'm a big Pac-Man guy. So I've been playing like J- Pac-Man Jr. and all these like really awful 80s and 90s Pac-Man <laughs> games that I remember from my childhood. Um, I'm hoping to get into some heavier stuff. I'm due to play Jedi Fallen Order. I want to play Spider-Man 2 when that comes out. And so I have a lot like
1: lined up, hundreds
5: of hours of gaming ahead of me.
1: Excellent. Well, Josh, thank you. Oh, thank you. How can people follow you or find out what you're working on now that Twitter is a fallen kingdom? Yeah, you can
5: find (laughs) me on other social media at Lost His Keys Man. I lost my keys man. Um, Or you can find me at joshdrujillo.com. Blue Beetle number one comes out in September. Washington's Gate General uh, is out by the time you're listening or reading this. And uh, I'm just grateful to get to do it. Thanks again, Josh. Of course.
1: Great. Okay.
3: And we
1: are back. It's Saturday. It's FlameCon, and we are here with Charlie Jane Anders.
3: Charlie, oh, Jane, how is the con treating you today? I'm having just such an incredible time. There's just so much love and positivity,
0: and
2: just, like, so
3: much amazing pure energy here. It's making me so happy. Oh,
1: wow. So we'll start off with the... Uh, with your, I won't say the reason, but cause there's many reasons to be here, but the thing that most of our listeners are probably familiar with your work with, which is New Mutants. Um, you just wrapped up a run on New Mutants featuring Escapade, the character you created from Marvel
3: Pride. Uh, how'd you get involved with that book? Um, with New Mutants? Uh, with Marvel Pride, the whole process. Yeah, I mean, it was a long and winding road. Like, I realized recently that it was back in 2017 that I first started having these conversations with Marvel about, like, helping to create a trans character, a trans superhero. And, you know, the concept changed a lot over the, like, six years between us, or the five years between us starting to talk about it and actually getting to do it. It was just one of those things. Um, I think that, you know, uh, there was a lot of interested in just so having said, someone who uh, was like and, canonically uh, trans, who was kind of a, a brand new character who could kind of um theory, step up and just take that role. Sure. And uh I don't know, I mean I feel like when I started working on escapade seriously in twenty twenty two, I just really wanted something that would speak to what I and other trans people were dealing with and like have like the joy and the resilience in the face of transphobia that I feel like we all need right now and have like queer family and queer kind of community aspects. But it's been, it's been a total blast. And like, you know, we launched her in the Pride issue, they gave me 20 pages, which is more than we'd normally get, I feel like. And I just got to run with it. And then it just was like pure luck that like there was this opening for someone to write New Mutants. And they were like, why don't you just take Escalade and keep her going in New Mutants. And I just, it's been such a joy to do that.
1: Outside of Escapade, have you had a particular established ex-character who you had a real joy in writing?
3: I mean, I really love Wolfsbane. Wolfsbane is one of my favorites, like, going back to, like, going back to the beginning, but especially, like, some of the ex-master issues that she was in, and just, like, I don't know, she's just, she's a character who has just grown and changed so much that it's great to kind of show she is now and kind of let you see how her past has shaped her, but also like how she's kind of, how she's kind of leveled up and she's now a mentor. I feel like getting to do that is really fun. Also, I mean, Sarah Bella, I just, I feel like I got to really do, there were some things with Sara Bella where I really got to kind of play with some of the aspects of her story that nobody had touched in a long time, and that was just such a gift. Yeah, that was such a fascinating pairing uh, martha
1: with uh sheila 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 i wasn't sure if it was a long or short e. <laughs>
3: no sheila yeah yeah, yeah and, so yeah that that pairing with
1: martha who is so unused to a body again and someone who is discovering the body they should be in such a fascinating yeah, no
3: totally uh, and like you know, but also when I started writing New Mutants with issue 31, Sarah Brunstad, my editor, was like, do you want to like, use the U-men John I mean, and Johnson Sublime? And, and I have like the worst memory. I had read all of the Grant Morrison New X-Men comics back like 20 years ago, but I was like, Who are the U-men again? I don't remember them. And so I was like, sure, they sound fun. I'll do the U-men. And I just sort of had some vague idea of like, oh, the U-men. They're like you know, evil body snatching nerds, kind of. And then it wasn't so. I went back and reread a bunch of the Grant Morrison issues, which luckily I have these giant hardcover omnibuses that from they, back in the day, and I got it like Goodwill. And um, I was like, oh shit! Martha has history with these guys, and especially with John Sublime. And this is like this is huge. And I didn't even realize what a gift I had been given until I went back and looked at re-read we, we everything, and I was like, oh, yeah. Has Martha actually met John Sublime since then? I don't think she has. Okay, so that's really what this story has to be about, like, at this point. So just getting, like, that felt such a huge, that was such a huge gift. Just getting to put Martha and John Sublime in a room together and have them have a conversation for the first time since New X-Men, where Martha really never got to, to talk to John Sublime back then either, so... You know, it was just like, I was like, yes, this is so, that was so incredible. That was like such an opportunity. I
1: fell in love with Morgan, oh, Sheila's best oh, friend. Got, me yeah. too. And he's they? They. They. Slash they. Okay. Must be careful. No, um, I mean, yeah, he,
3: he has he and they pronouns interchangeably, and I tend to alternate them. Uh, well,
1: they're a very different mutant than what we're used to is they have no interest in Koa, at least initially, no interest in big mutant battles uh, what was that an important perspective for you to have in the book?
3: Yeah, I mean, I felt like it's a perspective that I really wanted to represent, and Sheila also is kind of skeptical of Koa, but then kind of gets won over and like I don't know i I love Morgan too, I feel like. If I, if I wrote Morgan again, I would definitely not have him be mad at Sheila anymore because I feel like he's been mad at Sheila a lot. And I want to, if I get to write them again, I want them to just see them being on the same page for a while. But I feel like Morgan is somebody who is critical of stuff and likes to kind of take a step back, and which I, I identify with a lot. I'm, always, I'm often the one who I feel like when everybody else I know is like, yeah, this is great. I'm always like, is it? Is it really great? I tend to be very skeptical of anything that seems too good to be true. I feel like Morgan has this perspective of being really skeptical of like nationalism and this idea of like separate creating your own separate home where you exclude other people and you create a language that nobody else can speak. I felt like that was a perspective I really wanted to have in there. But also I just love that Morgan is Morgan is incredibly loyal. Like Morgan's loyalty to Sheila gets tested over and over again and he's just always there for her. And, you know, I feel like Morgan is someone who really, you know, thinks a lot about, like, there's, there's, one of my favorite Morgan moments actually is in New 32, where they start talking about deontology versus, um, god, brain, deontology versus, what's the other one? Uh, consequentialism. And I was like, I really want to have a moment because Morgan is kind of, we're going to be dealing with whether Morgan's going to be killed or not. Like, there's that whole storyline. I want to have a Morgan movie, just Morgan being awesome in a way that's not like he's, like, solving a problem or being fixing a thing or whatever. But Morgan just loves speaking out about, like, weird uh, thought experiments and ethical dilemmas. And so for him to just be like, let's talk about it, consequentialism versus deontology. <laughs> and, like, he just, that's, you can see him, like, just light up then we just light up with like excitement to talk about like the question of whether we judge an action by its consequences or by whether we would consider it intrinsically a good or a bad action. I'm kind of oversimplifying, but that's what it comes down to. Like how do we judge an action as an intent versus outcome? I think part of
1: why I love Morgan is their power.
3: Yeah, Where that did was... you come up with that power? I just, you know, I tried to think of the most absurd Ridiculous, mostly useless mutant power. I could honestly uh, for that pride issue, I created a bunch of like, like there was a thing where there was I was going to have a trans mutant support group, and I created like three other characters that had completely weird, absurd powers. And then I was, and then they were like, can you use the characters from Grace Freud's storyline? And so I didn't. I I came up with a bunch of really absurd powers. There was one where it was like. Someone can play music in your dreams. Like, they can't go into your dreams, they can't see your dreams, but they can control what music is playing in your dreams, I think. and Or something like that. It was like, I can't remember now. It was like, but I love to make it with weird superpowers that are kind of not the most useful. But then it was such, that was super fun because then I got to have Morgan like saved the day with his chocolate power in uh 33 and i was like "Ah." Mm -hmm. i love i love kind of pulling the rug
1: like that so you've written these comics but you're better known in the wider world for your prose.
2: yeah Um, probably
3: for you
1: what different muscles does prose stretch as a writer versus comics
3: yeah, I mean, I, I love that. I mean, the thing about comics is, it's not, comics are more visual, obviously, and you know, with my prose fiction, I I always have to really work hard to think visually in my prose because I, I'm, I'm not always a very visual writer. I often
0: will, like my first
3: drafts especially, it'll be like, they went into a room, there was some stuff, there was a guy, he had a face. You know, I just don't, I don't like describing stuff. I don't think very visually as a writer. I always have to go back and kind of beef up the descriptions of stuff in my books, in my prose. And so for comics, you really have to think visually in terms of like creating a cool image that the artist is going to enjoy drawing, but also just like how to use images to tell the story more. But the other thing with comics is with, with prose, you could, you know, you might have a word count limit, but you don't necessarily have a thing of like, this moment or this scene can only be so many words. Like, within a particular moment, you can go as long or as short as the moment needs to be. Whereas with comics, you really only get so many panels per page, you only get so many pages per issue, you have to really be disciplined about making every single page of the comic book count without it feeling like, you're just trying to cram in so much stuff that it's no longer gonna even make sense. So that's the thing, like, music doing a lot with a little in comics is the thing that it's, it's been a really good, it's been a really good kind of practice for just like thinking really strategically about how to get the most out of like, you know, we have four panels, we have five panels, each one of these panels has to really tell the story. And I've gotten now, so when I'm reading comics other people wrote, I will just sit there and like think about what, what work each panel is doing on the page and how they manage to, you know, and also just be like, oh, they did that. I want to try that sometime because, like, people will do, like, there's ways to use panels. There's ways to use the comics to, to do a lot in, like, a short space, but it's, it's there's a lot of tricks to it, I guess. So it's, it's really different.
1: When you're doing work for higher comics, You create these characters, and then you watch them fly the nest and live a life beyond you. Almost almost like a kid who moves out after college. Uh, What are your hopes for Sheila and Morgan?
3: I mean, I hope that people do stuff with them that I never would have thought of. Like, it's boring if if you create a character that people go on to just do, you know, kind of do a cover version of what you did with the character, or just more of the same or whatever, like, I really want, uh, I would love to see somebody take them in a direction that like, I'm like, wow, I never would have thought of that in a million years. It's like when, when people are adapting, when people are working on adapting my stuff for Hollywood, which happens more than I'm allowed to talk about it. Like, and now I'm not allowed to talk about even <laughs> cause we're on strike. But I always like, I always am like, I never am never, I'm sitting there like, I really hope that they follow exactly what I did like, in this, in the TV or movie version, I'm always like, I hope they take it in a direction that's, like, something that I never would have come up with, because, like, that's really what you want, and, like, I don't know, I just, I'd like to see Sheila and Bella continue to have their relationship, I'd like to see Morgan getting to have more fun, and getting to kind of show more sides of himself and himself, I don't know, Um, but, yeah, I, I, I would love to see them kind of go in some really different directions.
1: In the preface to your collection, Even Greater Mistakes, you talk about wanting to be not necessarily a novelist, but a short story writer. Right. Who are some of the short story writers who were formative to you or some of the specific stories?
3: I mean, so in speculative fiction, the obvious ones are like Ted Chang, who, you know, basically, I think Ted only writes short stories and every short story Ted Chang writes is this just perfect beautiful jewel that like just you have to sit there and kind of just absorb it after you finish reading it like i feel like ted's work just always blows me away same with kelly link who you know again to date i think has only written short stories and like her short stories are just so freaking beautiful and and just like so layered and her last collection that just came out recently was just mind-blowing I feel like, I mean, I'm trying to think of other short stories and short story writers who've had an impact on me. There's so many. I mean, Isabel Yap did a wonderful short story collection called uh, Never Have I Ever. Uh, They came out like a couple of years ago and it's just so beautiful. I keep saying beautiful, but it's really true. Um, I really, whenever I read a short story that I feel like it packs so much into like five or six pages and like I feel like I got a whole world or I got a whole, like I got taken on a whole journey in a short time, space of time, that's what just really blows me away, I feel like. That's what I love. As a
1: trans writer, as a queer writer who works in speculative fiction, how helpful or harmful do you find the use of monsters as metaphor? Or how about the mutant metaphor?
3: I mean, so I think I've been pretty, like, I think I was pretty like blatant about not wanting to use mutants as a metaphor for queerness or vice versa. Like, I was super careful. Like, I I was so happy that I didn't get any pushback on this. Like, I really wanted to have that thing where Escapade, she, like, like, comes out to her parents as a mutant, and they're like, that's great, we support you. And then she comes out to them as trans, and they're like, "You're, you're broken, you're messed up, this is, you know, social contagion, it's rapid onset, you know, gender dysphoria, I really wanted that. I really wanted to have, um, like to have it, you know, not just obviously to show that transphobia is like a, a separate real issue, but also to show that her problems aren't, her being a mutant and her being trans are two different identities she has, it's intersectional, it's not one thing. I feel like I, I get a little nervous when monsters are queer coded. I feel like that can make me a little anxious sometimes as a viewer, as an audience member. I feel like, especially if that's all that's queer-coded, if like everybody's queer, including the monsters, that's something else. But if it's like queerness is equated, I mean, it really depends if it's being done from a spirit of like, yeah, you know, we're all monsters and like we're going to burn it all down. Like I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm, I'm kind of rambling. This is not really coherent. That, I, it, but I feel like... I feel like for me, I, I want to see the humanity in queer people right now, especially. I want to see queer people having positivity and joy in addition to, you know, like if there's a monster who we get to see, what the, you know, get to see through their eyes, then that's, that's something that I'm here for, I guess. But I, I feel like I personally am really wanting, craving a lot of queer joy right now well charlie
1: jane this has been great yeah um, thanks so much well before we go how can people follow you online and find out the work you're
3: doing um uh, i'm charlie jane anders i'm at charlie jane anders on tumblr and instagram and those are probably the best places to follow me thank you very much well, thank you so much and also charliejane.com. and we
1: are here with james tiny in the fourth. james how is FlameCon treating you so
6: far? I mean, it's great. Uh, this is, uh, I, I forget if this is the fourth or fifth FlameCon I've been a part of, but I've been a part of it more years than I have not. And uh, it's really, really wonderful to be here with a bunch of my collaborators uh, under the Tiny Onion banner and uh, being one of the key sponsors of this show this year.
1: i save this for the end, but I'm, I'm going to go for it right now because you just said that. What was important to you about being a sponsor of FlameCon?
6: I mean, uh, as a queer creator in New York City, it is very important to me that this is a, like, that the, you know, the real epicenter of queer comics uh, exists in New York. And I wanted to do what I could to, you know, like, actually support the show in tangential ways and, uh, you know, and then beyond that, I wanted to, like, just being able to work with them to uh, help find the space for for my full team to you know to be able to do everything we're doing here it was really really great and they were everyone was really wonderful to work with Uh, so i need to to ask do you have the superpower to not sleep <laughs> because you seem to be releasing more and more comics and I don't know how you do. Oh, I mean, honestly, uh, the, something I realized very early on is that it's like, I, I love doing middle issues. Uh, so it's, you know, and I work on a lot of long form ongoing series. So it's just like, once I get them up and running, that's the thing that takes the most work and then keeping them running. It's just like, honestly, I, I have, a, I just have fun doing that. Uh, so you know, uh, whenever anybody asks how I do it, I'm just like, I, I never, if I, anytime I try to list out everything I'm doing, it gives me like a panic attack. But once I, like, when I'm just like focused on, hey, I'm uh, writing this one and then I'm writing the next one and then I'm writing the next one, I, uh, it all ends up happening. Uh, since formally launching Tiny Onion and Substack deal and all that,
1: how do you feel like your approach to the business has evolved?
6: Uh, I mean, honestly, the, the biggest thing that I've enjoyed is uh, getting to develop the books kind of outside the system and then finding the right publishers for them. Uh, you know, I I, I have, uh, I know the sorts of stories that I'm interested in telling and the creators that I want to work with. Uh, and, you know, I, I love my publishing partners, but it's uh, the creative process works. Uh, you know, it, it feels a lot more pure being able to take the time to develop each of these projects and, uh, you know, bring each of them to life on their own terms.
1: Is there something you're looking for in a collaborator with Tanyanian or is it just, Hey, you're my pal. Come on in.
6: (laughs) Uh, I mean, a lot of it is a shared sensibility. It's, uh, you know, it's caring about the same sorts of stories. You know, I think a lot of my work, you you know, it all has a like slight horror element, sometimes a lot more of a horror element, but the the real important thing for me is, uh, you know, really spending the time on like, you know, it's it's grounded character work. Like that is the biggest, most important thing with me. So on the writing side, that's what's most important. Uh, aesthetically, it's just it's being able to capture uh, the you know the spiritual energy of each of the books. Like you know, and each of the, the each series requires something a little different. But I think that there's. Uh, you know what I, I I want this. I want these books to feel like what uh, I think comics should be uh, moving forward. And it's just like more and more as I create more titles, it's just like these are the sort of books that I think should be filling the shelves uh, at comic shops. And slowly but surely, I'm filling those shelves. <laughs> uh, so, when you first
1: created "Something Is Killing the Children," which is one of your banner titles, did you? think that this is going to be your
6: Hellboy? This is going to be your thing that builds a universe that other people are going to be contributing to? Absolutely not. The original pitch was for a five-issue miniseries. uh, And it was... The series slowly unveiled itself as I was writing it. And uh, I'm extremely grateful for that. It's something that, you know... It was a rare experience, especially because it was coming out of so many years working in superhero comics that uh, at the start of Something is Killing the Children, the main thing that I was doing was... uh, you know, like, it, I was almost, like, just leaning against everything that I had been taught to do in superhero comics and then finding my own own voice by leaning away from those, uh, you know, those priorities.
1: One of the coolest things about something that is killing the children are the monster designs.
6: Oh, yeah. How heavily involved
1: are you in that, or is, at this point, you've been working with Werther de so long,
6: you kind of like, okay, this is a thing with a Big mouth in its stomach, go. (laughs) I mean, like, honestly, it's more more as we've gone along. It is leaving more in his, uh, you know, in his forte. It's like letting him uh, define the approach. And I'll just, I I define sort of what what it's thematically talking about. Uh, But then a lot of times, like, we were just sort of talking about, like, I had the idea of the you know, uh, the doppelganger style figure, but the ma- stomach in the mouth, ma- the mouth and the stomach is like, is something that Verter brought to the table himself. And it was just like, the second I saw that it was like, I was really, really happy uh, to see how that, that, that was pulled off.
1: How much do
6: you and, or Verter uh, the hand do you have in House of Slaughter? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I oversee like it. I'm very close with both Tate and Sam, and so it's just like we've talked uh, immensely about the long-form story arcs that are playing out as they interchange on the series. Uh, and you know, it's like we oversee everything that's come in, but especially as we've gone along, you know, they're such trusted collaborators that it does—they don't require like a firm hand to like make sure that they're drawing within the lines. And frankly, it's more interesting when they start drawing outside the lines, and then it's taking things from that and then realizing, like, oh, that's a really good idea. I do want a lot. Like, I want to lean in this direction.
1: At this point, do you have in your head, somebody's telling the children is going to be 50 issues, or do you have more
6: waypoints that you want to get to and the story will take its shape as it goes? Definitely more the latter, but, I mean, you know, the last uh, breakdown that I laid out was just like, you know what? Like, this is, uh, this is where it would go if we went all the way to 100 so, I mean, like, this is, uh, we're, we're not even at the halfway point.
1: So, amongst your other books is Wind, which is more YA. Yeah. Do you approach a YA story differently than you approach
6: your more intense horror stuff, like something killing the children? There's, there's definitely a tonal difference that, you know, sometimes it, like, if I'm writing a bunch of horror series, it takes a minute to tune in. Uh, like to get out of uh, my horror writer brain and into the right frame of mind, but they all come from such personal places, and they've all been things that I've been working on for so many years that I am like, yeah, it is. Uh, like it, it, they, they all come from a very similar place. It's, uh, but it, it all, uh, you know, it's all expressed differently. Uh, before a couple of quick last questions
1: about your non-tiny ending stuff, is there any? other kind of any book that you want to make sure everyone knows they should be reading right now?
6: Well, uh, the one that just launched is The Oddly Pedestrian Life of Christopher Chaos, which is uh, now releasing through Dark Horse Comics. Uh, The first two issues are out in stores. Uh, The third one's coming out later this month. This is going to be a long-form ongoing series. Uh, It's uh, it's a horror universe. It's a kind of superhero-adjacent universe. There's young kids in costumes, even though they're not necessarily superhero characters. Uh, but it's a it's a queer history of horror uh, told through the lens of these characters. One of the key characters of the entire series is uh, Adam Frankenstein, the original Frankenstein monster. So like that, and we're going to be leaning more and more into those elements as the series goes on. So it, the the reception that we've gotten to the series so far has been unbelievable, and you know that that's the one of the big things that we're highlighting here at uh, FlameCon this year. Um,
1: You're also currently in the middle of the second volume of Sandman Universe Nightmare Country, a story featuring the Corinthian of Sandman. Uh, How does it feel playing in Neil Gaiman's Sandman Universe, especially versus Batman, which is something that has so many years
6: and so many different creators, versus Sandman, which is more focused on one vision? I mean, it was incredibly intimidating, Uh, honestly. But at the same time... Sandman influences so much of my work uh that there was something very natural into slipping into the world. Uh when I started writing the series I was originally planning on playing with even fewer of like the original Sandman ca- cast of characters but as the series has gone on we've seen more and more of them uh peek their heads into the series and there'll be more as the you know as, as this entire story cycle plays out. Uh so I am you know I am just uh <laughs> really you know I'm I love working in that world like sandman is the reason that i make comics and you know honestly i just want to make a comic that uh you know neil would be proud of
1: so unless you couldn't tell from my shirt <laughs> uh, i am a big batman person yeah and you've had r- long runs on tech on batman on joker i'm not gonna ask for your favorite but is there <laughs> a character you've created because you've created a lot of characters. Oh, yeah. That you're particularly proud of, either on how they were received or how they've been integrated in the mythos. Uh,
6: honestly, one of the ones that I am most proud of their integration into the larger mythology has been Ghostmaker. Uh, Ghostmaker is a character that's been in my head for a really long time. Uh, I originally pitched, uh, you know, like some of the core pieces of that as a part of like a YA book to DC like a long time ago, where I wanted to create uh, Bruce's rival while he was training, and uh, then like. I had the you know stage of the main Batman series, and it's like, why not just lean in? Why not do the do this now? And especially working with Jorge Jimenez, who I think is the best character designer working in the industry right now, just letting him uh, you know go like go off. And uh, I think he designed one of the coolest looking new characters. The one of my characters that I like you know, it was the hardest to leave because it was leaving a lot on the table that I wanted to get to more to was uh, Miracle Molly. Miracle Molly is a character that I have a few more stories in my head for. I have no idea when I'll ever get to them, but at some point, you know, even if it's just like me being self-indulgent, like, uh, years down the road, uh, I will, I will write more Miracle Molly.
1: No offense to the rest, but Miracle Molly was my favorite of the lot, so I'm <laughs> I excited that. to hear that. Uh,
6: two final quick questions. One-
1: is there any chance we might ever see any more backstagers as a theater professional in my day job? <laughs> love that book.
6: I really appreciate that. I, I had dinner with Ryan Sai when I was out in, uh, uh, in Los Angeles a few weeks ago, like Ryan remains a close friend. Uh, I love that series. I, you know, I think it would require probably, uh, the series coming to life in uh, another medium to, you know, to, like to create the reason to bring the comic book version back but it's a world that i love and uh i would love to return to it someday
1: and finally how can people find out more about you and about tiny onion
6: huh? uh, uh, honestly probably the best place to follow me these days is on instagram at james the fourth all spelled out and uh you know otherwise uh and then from there you can find links to my newsletter you can find links to uh you know, uh, the my online store, shoptinyonion.com. Thank you very much, James. Thank you.
0: That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQA and a is part of ComicsXF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQA and a on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at comicsxf.com where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support wmq a at patreon.com slash comicsxf, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A and a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout-out. A $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, a $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Will Redmond, Tobias Carroll, Natalie Jordan, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at Matt Laz 1013 and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember, in the 1970s, Stan Lee reportedly used to maintain a collection of toupees that made it appear as if he was growing his hair out. Excelsior. W N Q A